Well, it's great to be with you as we continue this uh, journey on the gospel of God. Uh, and so uh, if you're brand new, again, welcome. Those of you joining us online, special welcome. If you haven't done so already, you can just click at the top of your screen or the bottom and download a, a copy of the message note sheet. It'd be super helpful as we go through. And if you guys are ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay, let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful to be here and to be under your leadership. We're so thankful for Jesus uh, that we are under his leadership as our king and and that we've been come to you, that we receive the gift of your spirit, that we're all in this transformation process to become the people we were created to be. And so we just pray, Lord, that you'd be here today, especially as we talk about a very controversial talk, that, that you would just give us your wisdom, your grace, your insight, your power, your courage, and that we would be able to embrace this truth of your vision for our lives in the area of human sexuality. And we pray this in your name. And everyone said... Amen. Well, our story starts today in the city of Vista, uh, which is in North San Diego County. And I mentioned that. I know a lot of you know that here, but for some of you in Arkansas, Germany, and so on, you may not know that. Uh, but anyway, it's, uh, this is where Lynn and I grew up together. And uh, so our story starts, we, we had finished college. We had recently moved back to Southern California, back to Vista, where we'd grown up. And uh, we'd been married a few years. And on this particular day, um, I get a call, and it's from a friend of mine at college, from my college years. And actually, he was one of the profs there. He was uh, a very young prof. Uh, he was one of the most popular profs on our campus. I went to a Christian liberal arts school. And, uh, and he and I become very close, but we hadn't, you know, we've been, we hadn't been back there in a couple of years. We hadn't seen each other for a while. And so he had recently moved to the LA area. And the reason was to pick up his second doctorate degree. Uh, he was going to be going to a very pr- kind of prestigious, well-known kind of Christian uh, seminary, uh, school of psychology. And, uh, and he was going to be, you know, pursuing this so he could become a clinical psychologist. And so um, he calls on this particular day, and he says, hey, something's happened in my life. It's super important. I want to share it with you. It's so big. I don't want to talk to you over the phone. Uh, is it okay if I just kind of drive down the two and a half hours I want to tell you in person? And so, of course, they said, yes, I'd love to see you. It had been a while. And so we set, a, we set a day. We set a time. And sure enough, he shows up. He comes in. Uh, Lynn and I greet him. We were living in an apartment kind of in the middle of town. We greet him, and then he says, I want to talk to you one-on-one. So we went outside. And we have this conversation that I will never forget uh, the rest of my life. Well, today, we are uh, continuing this journey that we're on, this series called The Gospel of God. And for those who are brand new, and every week, I know God's bringing new people both here online and and so just a quick recap, this, this series, uh, it's, it's based on a letter, uh, probably the most important letter in the second part of our Bibles that we call the New Testament. It's written from the Apostle Paul. He's writing to a group of Christ followers who live in the capital of the Roman Empire, the capital city of Rome. He's never been there. Uh, he's planning to visit them soon. And so he's writing and he's sharing sort of the big picture story, spiritual story of our race. He calls it the gospel of God. And so in the opening chapters, as he kicks it off, uh, he, he starts sharing the story of our race, how we were created for this relationship with God. But as a race, we've rebelled against our creator and we've rejected the truth about who God is, about who we are, and about the path to life, to a flourishing life, uh, that God is clearly revealed in creation, in our human conscience, and a result of rejecting the truth that the lights have gone on out, uh, got, gone out on us as a race. They've gone out spiritually, morally, um, psychologically, religiously, in every way. And so this has led to this downward spiral of human culture that starts with what, what, what Paul will describe as like spiritual confusion about who God is, and then it spreads to us to sexual confusion about who we are and leads ultimately to social chaos. And so the last couple of weeks as we've been kind of following what I call this downward death spiral, last week we entered for the first time to focus on the second stage of the death spiral, which is sexual confusion. And so we're going to pick it up today and take the next step in this journey as he goes deeper into the sexual confusion. So I'm calling this message Sexual Confusion Part 2. So if you have your Bibles, you have your uh, apps, let's open up. We're going to turn to Romans chapter 1. We're going to pick it up where we left off last week with verse 24 and verse uh, 25. Um, and we'll see what he says. So he says in verse 24, therefore, uh, and it was therefore because of our rejection of the truth, 
Um, God gave them over, which is Paul's way of saying says several times in this passage, hey, you can reject the truth, but you're going to pay the price for that because you're living your life in a way that's contrary to reality, right? So he says, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity. And so this is what we looked at last week, that, uh, that we reject the truth about who God is, we lose the truth about who we are, and so what we tend to believe is that the path to freedom, the path to fulfillment, the path to flourishing is just to follow our kind of fallen evil desires in the area of sexuality, and at least the sexual confusion. So we think we're pursuing freedom, but it actually, Paul says, it leads to this degrading of our bodies, kind of a loss of our humanity, and we talked about that last week. And then in verse 25, Paul comes back for the third time in this passage to say, here's the core reason for this. He says, they exchanged the truth about God for a what? Okay, so that's the core sin. All we say all the way through, we reject the truth, we embrace the lie, it leads to this downward spiral. And he said, they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who's forever praised. So first step, we reject the truth, spiritual confusion, then it leads to sexual confusion. But today, he's going to talk about sexual confusion uh, at another level. What he, what he describes is sex that's having sex against nature. In other words, against the created order of things. And so he's going he's to introduce this topic. We describe it today as same-sex relationships. So he says in verse 25, because of this, because of this rejection of the truth, God gave them over, there's that phrase again, you can reject the truth, but you're going to pay the price, uh, gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. Now, this is a very important phrase. In the Greek, what it literally says is they exchanged relationships that were in accordance with nature. Okay, so in other words, that, that are the way nature is designed, the way creation is designed, kind of rejected, kind of normal, and we, we embraced relationships that are anti-nature, so to speak, and um, for, for uh, unnatural ones. And he says, and this kind of went with both of our sexes, both men and women have done this in the same way. Men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. He said, men committed shameful acts with other people and received, notice this, they received in themselves the what? The due penalty for their error. Now, that word for error in the Greek is a word for deception or for delusion. So this is interesting because twice in this passage, last week and this week, Twice, Paul has said, hey, you think it's a path to freedom. You think that just following your fallen human sexual desires, giving them full sway, it's a path of freedom, it's a path of fulfillment, it's try your identity. But twice, he says, it's not what you think. So in verse 24, he said, this actually leads to the degrading of your bodies, the loss of your humanity. And here he says, in terms of homosexuality, same-sex relationship, it may seem like a path to fulfillment because always when we're involved in any kind of sin, it always seems to be true to us at the time, right? And he says, but the reality is you're gonna pay the due penalty. There's gonna be a price to pay because you're acting against nature, a way creation is designed. So... If we stand back from the passage, again, from starting at 118, again, big picture story is that Paul says, hey, the core problem of our race is that God has revealed the truth about who we are through creation and through our conscience, but we've rejected that truth because we don't like what it reveals. We don't like what it requires. And so when we reject the truth, it's like the lights go out. We plunge into darkness at every level. Remember, Paul said, professing to be wise, we become fools. And he said, this leads then to this downward spiral of confusion about who God is, then who we are sexually, uh, and then eventually a social chaos. And so today what we're looking at is sort of the second step of the second stage of sexual confusion, that we're not just now confused in terms of sexuality, in terms of general sexual morality, but, but even to the sense of sex that Paul says it's against nation, nature of the created order. So what I want to do today is I want to use this passage as a jumping off place, if you will, a window to compare and contrast kind of the Christian uh, biblical worldview of Jesus, the apostles, and so on, 
with kind of our current cultural worldview when it comes to human sexuality, but specifically with this important topic of same-sex relationships. And the way I want to uh, approach this is I want to split this message into two parts. In the first part, I just want to do a quick flyby on, hey, what does the Bible actually teach on this subject? Right. And I want to take you through a kind of chronological, quick flyby of what the Bible teaches. Now, some of you, you'll want to learn more about this. And so along the way, I'll give you some great resources. If you want to go deeper about this, here's, you, you want to read more, here's some resources. But we're going to start with a quick flyby. And then second, we're going to come back and say, in light of what the Bible teaches, uh, how do we live this out as followers of Jesus in the midst of a culture that increasingly, as I said last week, is embracing a sexual ide- ideology that all sex is good sex. Uh, in fact, it, it, uh, as long as no one's getting hurt or as, with consenting adults, and in fact, kind of following your natural sexual desires, whatever they are, to the full is the key to your identity, it's the key to your human uh, flourishing and to your freedom and fulfillment. All right, so we're gonna separate. So here we go. So uh, there in your notes, you have a section called the, the Gospel of God, the Christian Worldview. And so we're gonna start with kind of, here, what's the Christian worldview on same-sex relationships? We're gonna break this into four stages, right? We're gonna follow through the Bible, the Bible's teaching. So the first stage is at the creation. So when we get to the New Testament, we'll see this even more next week with Jesus, but when Jesus teaches about kind of God's vision for marriage and sexuality, Uh, he's going to always go back to the creation. If you want to know God's vision, you have to go back before the fall. When we were first created, what is God's vision for human sexuality? And so what we saw last week is when you open up the very first page of the Bible, we're introduced to this creator. It's incredibly brilliant and powerful and completely good, who out of that goodness and creative power, he creates this amazing cosmos that we're still just beginning to scratch the surface of understanding, really. And, and so uh, the high point of this creation account in, in Genesis 1 is the creation of the first man, the first woman, to rule over this creation for the creator. And so what the, what the Bible actually says is there in Genesis 1, and 28. So I want to read it and point out three or four things about it. So it says, so God created mankind in his own what? Now, this is incredibly important. I underline that. Um, that if we, if we want to understand the path to human flourishing, we need to understand that as a race, we're completely different than everything else in creation. Right? That, that, that when, when God creates the first man, first woman, that we are completely different and that difference, he says, is we're created in the image of God. We're created to be like God. Right? And he says, so in the image of God, he created them. And then what does he say next? He says what? Male and female, he created them. So notice that, that built into our humanity, built into who we are, that part of the image of God is our maleness or our femaleness, right? So two genders, kind of two sexes. We'll talk about that next, next week more. And so God blessed them, and he said to them, so this is his first instructions, right? For his first command is be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth, right? That's the one command of all of God's commands we have done a great job with, all right? So he says, and then rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So I, I want to highlight four things that stand out here. The first three I mention all the time when I talk about Genesis 1. You'll, you'll recognize these. Uh, the fourth one we're adding for today. Do you want to point out something for today? So one of, what I'll often say is when we come to the creation of our race, we, we learn three things. We're created, first of all, to be like God. Right? That's the first thing. We're created to be in his image, that we're created to like him. And because we're like him, that leads to number two, we're created to be in relationship with him. Like we have that capacity to be in relationship with this incredible creator that speaks the cosmos into existence, right? And we're invited into that relationship. And then number three, that we're created to rule over creation for him. So we're created to be like him, in relationship with him, and to rule over creation for him. But there's a fourth thing that I want to point out today that we're created to be like him in our maleness and our femaleness, right? That we're created male and female, and that this is part of the design because the very first command is to come together and propagate 
and fill the earth, right? So if we get into chapter two, which we don't have time to look at today in detail, but you'll remember this from last week. Of course, in chapter two, we have a close-up of this first marriage where God creates the woman from the side of the man and brings him together as male and female then. And he says the two will become what? One flesh, right? So from the, from the one comes the two, so the two can become one. We talked about it last week. And so, so what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is God's original vision for our sexuality. And this is what we talked about last week, that, that sex is created to help unite. It's sort of an emotional, physical, uh, spiritual superglue, right? It's designed to help us unite one man for one, with one woman for a lifetime of love and commitment, what we call marriage, and so that in that environment to bring forth children in a healthy environment where they can grow and thrive. That's the vision. Before the fall happens, that's the vision. And so what we learned last week is that from a biblical worldview, the worldview of Moses, the worldview of Jesus, the worldview of the apostles, that, that this is God's vision, and out, any sex outside of that vision is destructive. So we saw, as Paul says this week, it, he says, we're dishonoring our bodies. Remember that? He said, and of course, this would take in same-sex relationship, which he adds this week. He said that this, that will suffer the due penalty for this, okay? So this is the biblical worldview that the story starts. Sex is one man, one woman, a lifetime of life. Any sex outside of that is therefore uh, is destructive. It's kind of counter nature, if you will. And that takes in all sorts of sexual immorality. But of course, for our purposes today, it also takes in uh, same-sex relationships. So that's where we start. Number two, the second stage of this journey as we walk through the Bible is the law of Moses. So because of this, because of the created design, is what Paul says, uh, according to nature versus uh, anti-nature, if you will, uh, because of this, the law of Moses affirms this, that uh, when God calls the nation of Israel out of slavery, he calls them to be a, a, a kingdom of priests, right? And he calls them to be a light to the nations. It's through them that he's going to reveal himself. And he says, so it's important that you're like me. You regain that likeness. So, so you should be holy as I am holy. And so he says, that means you have to live differently from the nations around you. And he gives them all, all, all kinds of, of uh, laws to do that, but, but that includes sexuality too. And when it comes to same-sex relationship, twice in the law of Moses, it's very clear that same-sex relationships, catch us, are not only outside of created design, but because of that, they're not just wrong, they're not just destructive, but they're actually morally offensive to the Lord, to, to, to the creator. Now, the word that the, the Hebrew uses to describe this offense, if you will, uh, is the word to'eva, okay, to'eva. And so, um, I love the word just the way it sounds. Can we all say that? To'eva. Can we say God, let's do it again. To'eva, right? This sounds great. All right, so uh, to'eva. So what does to'eva mean? So to'eva uh, is a generic word that's used to describe uh, anything that it could be, depending on the context, it could be morally, spiritually, or just socially offensive, so let me give you an idea because we need to kind of get this down. So for example, uh, in your life groups, by the way, you'll study this this week if you're doing the study that we write. Uh, if you, um, if you uh, there in your note sheet, there's some references you can check out if you're not in a life group to the study. But for example, uh, let me give you an example. So uh, you remember when Joseph is the prime minister of, of Egypt and his family comes down uh, and he wants to have dinner with them but we're told the Egyptians would not eat with his family because they were shepherds, and that would be to'eva. So you get the feeling? It's like, oh, we're not eating with them, right? It's very much kind of, oh, that would be disgusting, right? Okay. That's to'eva. Uh, another example of this, um, Moses goes before Pharaoh, and he says, hey, you need to let us go into the desert for three days, and you need us to let us do our blood sacrifices to our God there. He says, because those sacrifices would be to you, to'evah, right? Disgusting, right? Like you, something beneath you. Uh, here's another one. In Deuteronomy, uh, God says, when you go into the promised land, and you uh, conquer the promised land, and you capture 
the gods of the Canaanites, silver gods, the gold gods, uh, don't keep those, destroy those, because to, decree, to keep those idols would be to eva. All right, so I want you to get a sense of the word. So it's not a word just like for sexual things. It's used, it's used to describe anything that could be morally, it could be spiritually, it could be socially, something that would be offensive or like a normal, like that's kind of disgusting. I wouldn't do that sort of thing, right? So this is the word that is used in the law of Moses. So we have in Leviticus 18, it says, do not have sexual relationships with a man as one does with a woman. That is what? Toevah, right? Um, Leviticus 20. If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is? Toevah, right? So, so the law of Moses says, hey, this is, this is not only wrong, but this is, hey, this is like morally offensive, like to God. This is as anti-nature. This is not a good thing. It's not the way creation was designed, right? So, so that's the law of Moses. Now, of course, we often forget this, but the law of Moses uh, was part of the Bible that Jesus was raised with, right? It's this is part of the Bible that Jesus and the apostles were raised with. And so for them, this is the word of God. And when they're looking at sexual relationships, it's always through that lens, right, of, of what is honoring to God and what isn't. And so uh, when we come to Jesus, this is interesting because there are those today, and we're going to talk about this just a little bit today. I mentioned this last week. There are those today that, that have, would call themselves followers of Jesus. They would say that we love his word, who are saying, hey, on this issue of same-sex relationship, we've had it wrong for 2,000 years. And so they would say, yeah, we know what the Bible says, but if you, if, you, if you know the Hebrew, if you know the Greek, if you know the culture of the time, that it's not, uh, it's not against uh, all same-sex relationships, only certain kinds of same-sex relationships. So it's interesting, like within, uh, within the kind of larger Christian circle or those who would call themselves Christians, I want to separate two kinds of groups here, all right? I want to identify two types of groups. One type of group is what we would call progressive Christianity. You may have heard that term. But these would be people that in some way see themselves as Christians, but they would just flat out say, straight out, they would say, hey, we don't really believe the Bible is the word of God in the way it's traditionally been taught, that we, we believe the Bible is more of a journal of the religious history of some of the greatest thinkers in the in the, in the nation of Israel and in the early church. And so there are some things that are good, there are some things that are bad, but of course today uh, we're more enlightened about these things and so we need to separate the good from the bad. And so, so they would be pro-same-sex relationship, maybe like a gay marriage, they'd maybe pro that, but, they, but they, would, they would be clearly saying, but we don't really believe the Bible is the word of God. You with me? That's a kind of a progressive form, right? But there's this other group over here that we call them affirming uh, Christians or people who claim to be Christians, at least. And, and these would be people, no, we do believe the word of God. We do love Jesus. We do love his word. But we just think we've misunderstood all the years. And when you understand the Greek, you understand the Hebrew, you understand the culture, uh, it's not really speaking against all same sex. It's, it's speaking against some. And you say, well, so why are you, why are you saying all this? One of the jobs of pastors one of the jobs of elders is to protect the flock, the flock of God from wolves. It's one of the most important jobs. In fact, if you read through the New Testament, almost every letter in there, one of the reasons it's written is to protect the truth, that false teaching is coming in from one source or another. And one of the, the, one of those if you read the letters of the New Testament, almost to a one, they'll be saying, hey, watch out. There's where people are claiming to be of Jesus, but they're not, right? And so, so Paul will say to the elders in the church at Ephesus, the last time he sees them in Acts chapter 20, he says, watch out. He says, day and night, I have taught you the whole counsel of God. But he said, after I leave, savage wolves are going to arise from within your own midst. And so you need to be on guard. And so as followers of Jesus in a culture that doesn't believe in truth, we are to be called different. We're to hold on to truth, right? 
And so there are these groups that, I want you to catch that, that, are, that have come out of historic Christian positions. They've come out of Orthodox. There are certain pastors and leaders in our own country today, the ones we look to for leadership, that are now changing their position on this. And one of the things that they will claim is, you know what? We think that certain kind of like monogamous, same-sex relationships like marriage, like that, that's a good thing. And, and that one of the arguments they will use to support this is to say, well, you know, Jesus never taught about homosexuality. Jesus never condemned it. And that's, while that's technically true, it's historically naive. Because the, re- the reality is, as we learned last week, that for Jews in the first century, for the early church, by definition, sexual immorality is anything outside of this one man, one woman relationship we've talked about. And so, and in Jewish culture, we know this from all the literature of that time, the Jewish literature, that not only was sexual immorality seen as wrong, that same-sex relationship was seen the most wrong. And so in Jewish culture, there wasn't anyone practicing same-sex relationship. Jesus didn't have to address this. It's not part of his audience. But here's the thing. He also didn't talk about bestiality. He also didn't talk about incest. He didn't talk about pederasty, which is like men having sex with young boys, which was rampant in the, in, in the, in the first century Rome, cult, Roman culture, but not in Israel. See? So just because he doesn't address something doesn't mean that he's not against it. He stands in the tradition of the Jewish scriptures. And so for, but what he did do is when he talked a lot about sexual immorality. And as we saw last week in Matthew 5, when he did talk about it, he didn't lower the bar, he raised the bar, remember? And it's not just having committing adultery, it's like being transformed. So you don't look at a woman, I would if I could. And, and in Mark chapter seven, it's not on your note sheet, but the reference is there. You can check it out later. Jesus specifically said that sexual immorality, right, is defined in Jewish culture. Sexual immorality is one of the things that defiles us, right? Whether it's heterosexual, uh, sexual immorality, whether it's homosexual, it doesn't really matter. It defiles us, okay? So, so that's the third stage. Now, of course, when the gospel of Jesus, the message of Jesus went on to Roman culture where this type of sexuality was being practiced, then of course, the early church had to address it. In fact, many people came out of a lifestyle of this when they came to Jesus and had to leave this behind. And so that brings us to the Apostle Paul. And so the Apostle Paul is going to specifically talk about same-sex relationship. Remember, he talks about sexual immorality often, which kind of takes in all of this. But he specifically, in addition, talks about same-sex relationships three times, three or four times in the New Testament, depending on how you count it. But the most important is the passage that we studied today. And what I want you to catch is that that this is part of his story, the big picture story of the human race. It says, hey, the wrath of God is against the human race because we've rejected the truth. It's revealed in creation and revealed in conscience. And the lights have gone out. And one of the results of that is sexual immorality in general and even furthermore, sexual same-sex relationships, right? So this is interesting because when you come to like progressive Christianity or affirming Christianity, what they will say again is, well, Paul was not talking about kind of a monogamous relationship. I'll say what he was talking about was, and there'll be different versions of this. What he was talking about is homosexual relationships where there is a power imbalance. What do you mean by that? Well, like when a, a master would force a slave to have a homosexual relationship. Or they'll say that he's not talking about people that are just kind of, quote, quote, born that way, truly gay, and we'll talk about that later, but we're not talking about that, but he's talking about people who are just living a very promiscuous life. And so that's what he's getting. But, but, you know, Paul and Jesus didn't really understand about the identity thing, and uh, so they weren't really against that. But what I want you to catch is it just doesn't fly because Paul doesn't, he's not talking about a particular kind of homosexuality. In fact, uh, homosexuality was very common in the Roman Empire. Uh, Even some of the emperors, uh, we may talk about this next week, but uh, you know, the Roman emperor Nero, who's so famous, he was was, uh, 
he, he became like the emperor while Paul was writing this letter. And one of the things we know about Nero is that he, he would have sex with all kinds of people and things and all. Uh, in fact, one time he even killed his wife in a rage and then missed her so much, he found a young boy who looked kind of like her and tried to feminize her and turn her into a woman to have sex with. So there was, this was very known in the different kinds of uh, same-sex relationships were very known. Sex with boy, very common. It's very part of, very common. So, so Paul's not, what Paul is saying, is not, he's not saying at all that certain kinds are okay. That would have been anathema to Paul, right? This is like toava to Paul. What, his, what he's saying is much bigger. He says that this is wrong because it's against nature. This is a violation of the created Order. Now, of course, the good thing about the gospel, and we all know this, is it doesn't matter kind of where we come from, what our past is, what our sin of choice is. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus always cares more where we're going than where we've come from, right? And so in the early church, you had many people coming out of this kind of highly sexualized culture. And some of those apparently had come out of a same-sex-like culture, like a lifestyle. In fact, one of the other places where Paul talks about this is in 1 Corinthians 6. The reference is on your note sheet, not the verse, but the reference is there. And Paul says to the Corinthians, hey, you're, you're followers of Jesus now. You have to leave your old life behind. And he gives them like nine examples of things they have to leave. And four or five of them are in the sexual realm. And one of them is in same-sex relationships. He actually even talks about the two types of same sex, at least in the male, the one who plays more the male role, the one who plays more the female role. He uses different words to describe them. And he says, hey, don't be deceived. Those who are do the evil will not inherit the kingdom of God. Like you have to leave this. And then he says these beautiful words. He said, and that is what some of you were. He said, but you were washed, you were cleansed, you are justified. So the good news of the gospel is it doesn't matter what our, our past is, heterosexual sin, homosexual sin, that Jesus has come to set us free. He's come to, to that we can be recreated by the power of the Spirit and the people we were created to be. All right, so that's a big picture. You look through the Bible, uh, here's God's created design, right? This is the, it's reinforced by the law of Moses, uh, reinforced by Jesus, taught clearly by the apostle Paul. And so the question this leads to, though, is, okay, but how do we live that out? If we're serious about following Jesus, we, we, we follow Jesus, whether we have same-sex desires in our life or not, but how do we live this out in the midst of a culture that's increasingly losing its mind when it comes to human sexuality to the point where even we're saying, hey, you can choose what you want your gender to be, and we'll talk about that more next week, right? Next week, we're going to talk about the difference between true gender dysphoria, which is a very real thing, and, and talk about that, uh, and kind of this transgender craze that's kind of sweeping our culture, uh, and especially our young women, adolescent women, right? So we're going to talk about that next week. But, but so how do we live this out in a culture that's becoming increasingly hostile to the message of Jesus, the Christian worldview, and especially on this issue of sexual uh, ideology. All right, so there in your note sheet, you have a section called The Gospel of God, How Do We Live This Out? And what I want to suggest is this week and next, that whether it's this issue, other issues, that we approach this, what I'm calling the three C's. And the first C is the C of clarity. That as followers of Jesus, we need to get clear on the big picture story the Bible is telling, and we need to get clear on what God's vision for human sexuality is. That's why he spent so much time on it last week. Um, and, and that we need to get clear and, and confident and clear on that because we have voices from all over the culture. No, that's not right. This is what's right. So we need to get clarity on that. And that's one of the reasons today we took the time to delve into this, what the Bible actually teaches. But for some of you, maybe you're struggling with same-sex desire in your own life. Maybe you have a friend who is, a son, a daughter who is, uh, uh, co-workers who want to understand this more. Like, what does the Bible actually teach? I've kind of put a couple books on there that I think would be very helpful. Uh, they're both by uh, kind of a scholar named Preston Sprinkle. It's very accessible, very easy to read, but it can really help you delve into, well, what does the Bible actually say? What was Roman culture like? What was Jewish culture like? Like these things that I'm stating up here, if you want more like to go deeper with that, that would be helpful. 
But this is where we need to stay. As followers of Jesus, we need to start with the creation, right? the cre- God's original vision. That's where it sets the, the standard for all of us in all areas. And so once we've done that, what we've seen today is what Paul claims in Romans 1, that any sex outside of that is not only outlawed, it's not only immoral, but it's destructive. We may think it leads to freedom, but as you look at our culture today and what has happened in American culture since the sexual revolution of the 60s, and you see the disaster that has been unleashed in our culture, Broken relationships, broken lives, broken families, STD, rape, me too. I mean, it just goes on and on. It's interesting, uh, in one of our uh, worldview lectures uh, that we had this summer that was so good, Sean McDowell talked about, they said, hey, do a thought experiment. He said, just, just imagine what the world would be like if everyone subscribed to the teaching of the Bible in terms of human sexuality in regards of sex, marriage, and divorce. Many, many, many of the biggest issues of our time will be resolved just by that one thing. And so so we need to get uh, clear on this. And so what this means in is biblically, from a Christian worldview, any sex outside of that God's design is sexual immorality. And what this means is that for us as followers of Jesus, sexual purity, sexual integrity is a non-negotiable. This is something that we often talk here at Rocky Peak about primary versus secondary issue. This is not a secondary issue. This is not, well, hey, we agree to disagree. And some people will say that, well, this is like Romans 14, eating meat sacrificed to idols. We can all get along. It's like, no, no. This is a non-negotiable. And you say, why? Because the New Testament is so clear. It's a non-negotiable. Like, let me give an example. We looked at this passage last week, but in Ephesians 5, this is, the Bible says this many places, but, but I want to come back to this. This is one that's so powerful. I know I've memorized this in my life just to help me keep my head on straight in the midst of a culture that's losing its mind. They said, for, um, for of this, you can be what? Sure, take it to the bank. No immoral, and in context, if you went back two verses, he's talking about sexual morality. No immoral or impure or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. That's a strong statement, isn't it? Hey, well, I think I can be an affirming Christian. I believe in Jesus, I believe in the Bible, but I'm an affirming Christian. And Paul says, hey, You may affirm that, but you don't have any inheritance in the kingdom. And look what he says. He says, let no one deceive you with what? I want to tell you two things he's saying here. Number one, it's possible for us to be deceived on this issue. And number two, he says, let no one deceive you with empty empty words. And I want to go back to the story I started the day with, the story of this close friend of mine that I love dearly, and who was one of my, you know, profs at, at the school where I went. And um, as I mentioned, he came out to become a psychologist and uh, to go through school. And so he calls, you know, he calls, and he says he wants to come down. And I'm really excited to see him. And um, just a little bit of the background of our relationship. Uh, when I was, uh, I had met him as a freshman when I was in college, so I was 18 at the time, I met him. Uh, he was like 32 at the time, and he was one of the most popular profs on campus. And through a series of events, uh, we got to know each other. And the following, uh, the following fall, he asked me to be in a, kind of a, a discipleship group that he was leading to, to actually, uh, not just to grow, but to help lead the whole, he was a department head, to help lead the whole department. There was only 12 of us invited to that uh, out of uh, a larger major. And uh, it was a real honor because this friend of mine, and my, we were the only two sophomores, everyone else was upperclassmen. So it was a real honor. We got to know him fairly close. And so that, that fall, in the middle of the fall, um, that I get a call one day, it was a Saturday morning, and I can tell he's really distraught. And, and he says, hey, could we meet today? And so with this other friend, the three of us met kind of in a secret place on campus, like, I don't know what's going on. And he is like, you know, like four story of this building in this kind of back room. 
And, and what he shares when we get there is he's actually struggled with same-sex uh, desires since the time he was in high school. And so though he's married now, he's been married, he's got an eight-year-old son, uh, and happily married too, but, um, but that he still struggled with this. And so the, the night before, he'd given in the temptation, and he'd gone into Chicago with a, one, a one-night stand with a man he'd never met. And so he's just heartbroken, right? He's He's followed Jesus. He's like he's given this. He's just heart. He's crying. He's in tears. And so he calls my friend and I, two 18-year-olds, right, to come and walk him through this. And so, so we did, right? And we just put our arms around him. We loved on him. We said, hey, you know, we just reminded him of the gospel, reminded him of the cross, and like, hey, uh, he was super repentant. We just need to leave this one. We just assure him of God's forgiveness. And it was just kind of a beautiful time. And so shortly after that, I dropped out of school to get married, and we kind of lost touch a little bit. But I eventually went back and, and finished my schooling. And so now we're back, you know, uh, uh, Lynn and I are back in Southern California where we'd grown up, and I get this call saying, you know, that he wanted to come down. He was going to grad school. I knew that, but I hadn't seen him since he'd moved to California. And he wants to make this two-and-a-half-hour drive down. And so I'm excited about this, right? We haven't seen each other in several years. I just kind of assume he's been walking with Jesus. And so he comes down. Well, here's the good news. After he greets us, the good news is he, he takes me outside. He wants to share with me the good news that we've had it wrong all this time. And he wants me to be one of the first to know that God is not against same sex. He's only against certain kinds of same sex. And the way he's discovered this at his Christian school is he was referred as part of his training to a Christian counselor who told him that God has made him this way and he's fighting against God's order in his life to continue to resist this. And as a result of that, he's embraced this teaching and as a result, he's leaving his wife of 16 years and his adolescent son to pursue this new lifestyle. What I want you to catch is this kind of teaching is not necessarily new, but back then it was rare. What I want you to catch is that men and women, it's no longer rare. This is hitting us because of our cultural moment. It's hitting us at every level. And you're going you're gonna to see authors that you've respected, Christian authors, Christian celebrities. You're going to see churches that were once like paragon models of the faith. You're going to see this increasingly that people are going to be capitulating to the culture. And they're going to be using empty words. And part of what I want to do as followers of Jesus is say, hey, listen, as followers of Jesus, the word is clear. Jesus is clear. If we're going to stand with Jesus, we need clarity on this issue. All right? We can't be deceived. Look what Paul says. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such thing, God's what? And that's how Romans 1 starts off, right? The, past, the wrath of God is being revealed. And against all the ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth. And so if we're going to walk with Jesus, we need to get clear on this, that we can't compromise. We, we can't say that, that either sex outside of marriage is immoral or it's not. And if it is, then we can't affirm sexual immorality. Right? So, hey, but, we, but we're going to get married. It's, uh, no, but that's sexual immorality. We can't affirm that. So loving someone is not affirming what's destructive. Right? Loving someone is standing with the truth, what if for their flourishing. Right? So we're going to start there. The first C is the C of clarity. We need to get clarity on this. Number two is the C of compassion. That when we're approaching this issue as followers of Jesus, you know, we're always called to love God and love people. And so it doesn't really matter what sin someone is caught up in, that we're always to approach with compassion. Of course, Jesus models this, right? He comes, he hangs out with sinners, and he doesn't allow them to leave, stay in their sin, right? But he's going he's gonna to hang out with sinners. He models this love that we're, we're all lost, right? In a sense, we're all to'ava, Right? Well, we've all sinned, we've all come short of the glory, but we're into Romans 3, Paul's getting some really strong language. We're all Tova. Right? And so as followers of Jesus, we need to be modeling this. We need to, when we're with non-believers, we don't agree with that life, so we can't affirm that. We love them 
to the extent they will let us, right? But we're going to love them and we're going to build genuine relationships. We can share the good news of Jesus. He's come to set us, all of us, free from our, whatever our sin and destructive things are to live the life that we were called to live, right? It's the good news of the gospel. But this is especially important for those of us in the church of Jesus that we live this out. This is one area where we just, as a, as a movement of Jesus, uh, we just not live this out well. With, with non-believers, we've often kind of rejected them. We've used really, we've really like negative language, uh, jokes or whatever. Uh, to, and instead of loving people who are far from God, we've often been very harsh and judgmental. Right? But it happens within the church too. Often when people in the church of Jesus come forward, like I struggle with this, we don't know what to do. And we often, without, without really saying it, are like, okay, like this, like uh, and we're gonna we're gonna reject them, right? And so this is like this is not Jesus, right? That that we want to create an environment where we love people well, help them wrestle through these issues, right? And, and we don't we we can't accept that lifestyle. We can't affirm that lifestyle. We we'll have to hold accountable for that lifestyle. But we we need to come around and support and love one another and create a safe environment where we're brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling with this can really process this and we can come alongside and help them follow Jesus. Like this young friend and I came along, my friend, uh, we need to come alongside and su support and help them follow Jesus in this difficult area of their lives. And often we've, as Christians in the Christian community, we've often had very simplistic answers to complex problems. Uh, often we've kind of assumed like if someone has same sex desires, it's either as a result that they've been, say, like sex sexually molested or something like that, or they've had this kind of a mom or this kind of a dad or whatever, uh, or, we've, uh, or that somehow they've opened the door to this in their life. Maybe it's their sexual history, maybe it's pornography or something. And so we kind of have a simplistic uh, answer of how this happens, and then a simplistic solution. Hey, if you just pray and ask Jesus to take this the way he will. And that is often not the case. And the reality is that we don't really know, even to this day, exactly why someone has same-sex desires. Um, sometimes we can look at their surroundings and say, hey, there is certain things that have happened or certain traumas that may play a part of that. But you know, the best research today, and I'm not talking about the media, you, can, you can't trust the media for anything, right? But the best research today, the best studies, suggest that there, there seems to be perhaps some interplay between what we call nature, kind of born that way, or your genetics, uh, and nurture, like what has happened in our life, our life experiences. But, but at this point, we don't really know. But of course, the reality is it doesn't matter why we have this. Even if research shows in the future, oh, there's more of a genetic component, it doesn't really change anything because what we know as a result of the fall, all of our biological systems have been impacted, right? And we're people born with heart issues, people born with kidney, and it's like to think that our sexual system is the one system that's perfect would be odd, right? So, but whether it's biological, whether it's, uh, it's environmental, whatever the cause, um, as followers of Jesus, we're to help each other pursue God's vision of sexual purity. And it's very naive to think that when someone comes to Jesus and they still have, they have same-sex desires, that that will instantly change. Because the reality is, I would say there's at least three buckets I would put people into, my experience and also uh, personally here at Rocky Peak, over my ministry, and then uh, just in reading as well, that there's kind of three buckets. So some people come to Jesus, and Jesus, it's almost like you know when some people come to Christ, maybe they're an alcoholic or a drug addict and heroin, and Jesus just instantly, and they're no, they're no longer that. But we all know that that happens sometimes, but not all the time, right? Many times we're going to have to go to celebrate recovery and a recovery program. And so, so for some people, there is a freedom from that same-sex desire. I think that's more rare than normal, but it does happen. There are other people that is, they grow in their uh, love for Jesus and they, they, they're, that, this, uh, that what happens is it doesn't, not all their same-sex desire is removed, 
but that God like gives them grace. They actually have sexual desire for someone of the opposite sex that becomes their spouse. And what they will say, this is very common, is that, yeah, I still struggle with same-sex desire, but God has given me a desire for my spouse, for my heterosexual spouse. And then there are other people that say, have come to Jesus, and here's my experience. When I talk, and this has happened to many of, many of you at Rocky Peak over the years, when you've shared this with my, is that for many people, is that for most people that I know that are followers of Jesus, Christians, and maybe often for those who aren't, is that they don't want this. They have often pleaded with God to take this away. And so often you'll have people that they love Jesus and love his word. They don't want this. And yet for whatever reason, God has not taken it away. So their calling is like, it's almost like a single person that has always wanted to be married, but they're not being married to, to live a life of sexual purity right, to live a life of celibacy. So you almost have these three different buckets of types of experiences. But whatever the experience is, we need to be a people that come around these brothers and sisters who struggle, and that when they share that, we need to be the body of Christ. We need to love them well, right, because we need to provide that kind of support, not support in sin, don't misunderstand, a support in their pursuit of Jesus as they learn, like we all have to learn, to put to death the deeds of the flesh in order that we live in the spirit, amen? So, so here's the vision, this is super clear, that like this week in your life group, if someone has the courage to share in your life group, that, they, that, that they're one of the people that Michael was talking about, that I struggle with this, I would hope we'd be the body of Christ that come around to love them and, and encourage them. And can we t- let me tell you something. If you're a follower of Jesus and you struggle with same-sex desire, but you're committed to follow Jesus in your life and to live out his vision of sexual purity, you are some of my greatest heroes. And I mean that sincerely. Over the years, I've dealt with many people here at Rocky Peak that have struggled. They've come to me, and it's just been beautiful to watch how God has worked in their life. And many of those I've seen have gone on and have uh, beautiful marriages today. Not always, but many times. And so uh, this is something as the body of Christ, we need to come around and we need to live lives of compassion, whether we're dealing with non-believers like Jesus did, right? Or whether we're believing in the body of Christ, because this is critical for someone that struggles with same-sex desire. This is critical to be part of a community of love and support that helps them follow Jesus. Amen? Okay. Uh, the, the, uh, oh, by the way, I put three resources there, books. The first one's more of an academic book, but it's very accessible. It's by one of the leading Christian researchers on homosexuality, a respected researcher. And he just really understand the dynamics of homosexuality, uh, kind of what does it mean to be gay or not to be gay? How do you approach that uh, to think through the issue? So it's very helpful. The other two are people that are uh, uh, leaders in the body of Christ, they love Jesus, but they still struggle with same-sex attraction. They, but they're committed to a life of purity. The first one, Wesley Hill, this book, Washington Waiting, he's a great example as, as far as of a, of a man who says, hey, Jesus hasn't taken this desire again, but my passion for Jesus is greater than my passion for these illicit relationships. And so, and so if Jesus doesn't resolve this or take this away, I'm gonna, I know he will when he returns. And I'm gonna continue to follow Jesus and live a holy life, right? So a beautiful story of a young man, a great example. The other one, the other story, uh, this book, uh, the one that's called uh, Gay Girl, Good God, is a story by an African-American uh, woman, just a beautiful woman, uh, Jackie Hill Perry. And uh, she's a great example of someone that came to Jesus out of the same-sex uh, kind of background. And, what, and she's a great example of someone that says, I still struggle with same-sex desires, but God has given me desire for my husband. And she's now happily married with children. And so it gives you kind of uh, some different stories, different journeys along the way that may be helpful if you're working through this. Now, the last C is the C of courage. And... Uh, this is, this is an area where we're going to have to grow in the movement of Jesus because what's happening is the farther we go down as a culture, this death spiral, uh, a couple things are happening. Number one is the more confused we're becoming as a culture about sexuality. Uh, we're going to talk about this next week, talk a little bit about queer theory and where this all comes from, but from a, from a worldview standpoint. But we're becoming more and more confused. But the more confused we're becoming, the more uh, culture is becoming hostile to anyone who doesn't 
sign off with this kind of new sexual ideology that we see uh, in general represented by the LGBTQ uh, plus community, right? Not, not that everyone in the community is suggesting that, but that is by that kind of activist, that sort of point of view. And so what that means is that for you and I as followers of Jesus, if we're gonna be faithful to Jesus and we're gonna be live out this vision of human flourishing, uh, that the cost of following Jesus is going up, right? This is, this is the place where the teaching of Jesus and the word is coming most in conflict with the values of our culture right now. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. And I think there are many reasons for this. But one of the reasons for this is that uh, Paul says in Romans 1, 18 through 20, he says that, that God has revealed the truth through, our, through creation and through conscience, right? And so, so in our culture, we live in a culture that is highly naturalistic. We bought into a natural, this, this world's it's billions of years of random accidents. Catch this, the evidence against that is overwhelming. That when you study this at any level, the level of complexity of our universe on the nano level, on the macro, is so incredible that you have to stick your head in the sand to believe it's all an accident. In a similar way, when you look at our human conscience and sexuality throughout the ages, right? not Christian, but just throughout the ages, and you look at the way our bodies are actually made to fit together, you have to stick your head in the sand to believe that all sexual morality is a social construct. There's no basis for it in reality. And what Paul says in Romans chapter one is that when we come to the end of time, that the human race will be without excuse. In other words, we may be able to spin our narratives here, but when we get there, it's gonna be so obvious that we've rejected the truth that was in front of us our whole lives. There's gonna be no excuse. And yet in this culture, we want to believe a lie so much that anyone who shines a lie a light on that lie is gonna receive a hostile response. It's like you're, we're trying so hard to believe there is no God. And we're trying so hard to believe that all sex is good sex, it doesn't matter with whom. And we all deeply know from creation and conscience, it's not true. If you study this through history, you'll see this. You know, my wife was reading a novel right now about the Roman Empire historical novel, you know, well-researched. And there's, one, there's this Jewish woman who's been taken captive after the destruction of Jerusalem. And uh, for a while, she was sold into prostitution, a brothel as a slave, and then she gets free, and now she's been taken in by a Roman. But, one of the, but in her past, she used to be, one of the women there in the past used to be like a priest of, of the goddess uh, Athena, but after she's sold into slavery in a brothel, she can't serve as a priest, priestess. She's been defiled. It's a Roman Empire. Like there's defilement everyone, but even there they knew. You see? And, and I think that we're a culture that's trying to suppress the truth about who God is, and we're working very overtime. And because of this, the last thing you want to do is anyone who questions your narrative because they're bringing up what you're trying desperately to suppress. And this leads to great hostility. And Jesus talked about this. In fact, yesterday, before I gave the message yesterday, a couple passages came to mind that were late ads. And I want to give you the references. Just talking about it real quickly. They're not on your note sheet. But there are two things that Jesus said or were said right around Jesus' teaching. The first one is from uh, John chapter 7 and verse 7. When Jesus makes his statement, I want you to listen carefully. He says... The world hates me because I testify that its deeds are evil. Let that sink in. That's what's going on in our culture right now. The world's increasingly hating us because our very existence, the fact that we don't affirm or agree, is testifying that the deeds are evil. 
Jesus said this, or John the apostle, we're not sure which, but in John chapter three, you know, after the famous verse, God so loved the world, a couple of verses later, the scripture says, everyone who does evil hates the light. And so this is what we're happening in our culture. The darker the culture becomes, the brighter the Christians are, the more they're gonna be hated. And of course, Jesus talked about this very straightforwardly in John chapter 15 there in your note sheet. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. Hey, you're in good company. He says, you're on the winning team. Hey, if they hate you, hey, that's good news, right? He says, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you don't belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world And that's why the world hates you. Or look what he says next in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are those who are what? Persecuted. So like Jesus, if he were here right now, if you're being persecuted over this issue in your family, in your friendships, on your job, Jesus would tell you, actually, you're blessed. You go, wait a second. How can we be blessed to be persecuted? He goes, oh, well, He said, if you're persecuted because of righteousness, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven, uh, you're on the right side of history. And he says, blessed are you when when people insult you, when they persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. What does that look like in our culture? You're a hater. You're a bigot. And he says, it's all false. But he says, this is what happens This is the way darkness responds to the light. They hate it, they wanna put it out, so they're gonna slander you, they're gonna persecute you, they're gonna try to silence you. They're gonna try to cancel you. And he says, when that happens, when they try to cancel you, he says, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before. He says, this is the way it's always been. And so, you know, as I thought about it this week, I thought about this issue over the last many years. You know, what, I, what I've come to realize is that whenever the gospel goes forth into any culture, it doesn't matter which culture, that the gospel is always going to challenge and confront certain core values of that culture. So like, in the, in, like in, when the gospel first started in Jerusalem, what, why were Christians persecuted? Well, they believed Jesus was the Messiah And the Jewish establishment believed that Jesus was a blasphemer. He was a false prophet. So that's where where the conflict came, right? As the gospel moved out in the Roman Empire, why were Christians persecuted? One of the many reasons, but one of the most, is that they would not bow down and worship the gods of Rome. And in Roman worldview, catch this, in Roman worldview, the way they thought is, The reason Rome is so prosperous, the reason Rome is so powerful, the reason Rome has had the Roman peace is because we honor the gods. And so when Christians said, no, for us there's one God, for us there's one Lord, Caesar's not our Lord, they were threatening the peace and prosperity of the whole realm. And so that's why they're persecuted. Are you following this? So in every culture, there will be certain things that the gospel comes against that lead to persecution. It doesn't matter. It won't be different things in different cultures. In our cultural moment right now, one of the greatest gods of our culture is human sexuality. And for those who will not bow down and worship at the altar of the new ideology, there will be persecution there will be a price to pay. And that's why, as followers of Jesus, we need to wake up, understand the times, and we say, hey, this is a time for us to rise and shine. This is a time for us to embrace the courage that Jesus called us to. That we we need to have great clarity on the truth of God, his vision for human flourishing, the path to life. We need to get clear on that. We need to have compassion for those who are caught up in this, compassion for those in our midst who are struggling with this to strengthen them. But then we're gonna need courage because there will be a price to pay. And some of you are facing it right now. You're facing it in your families. You're facing it with maybe your kids. You're facing it uh, with maybe children that say, if you don't affirm me, I'm gonna disown you. 
You're, you're facing it in your careers. It's becoming increasingly a litmus test whether you get hired or whether you stay on or whether you can teach here. Right? And so what we need to understand is that this is nothing new, that wherever the gospel is God, Jesus said, it's going to, it's going to lead to conflict. We just want to make sure the conflict's for the right reason. Right? We don't want to be cut because we're haters. Like we, we want the conflict to be because we love people and we love God enough to stand for the truth because Jesus said that we are the light of the world. But he said, if the light loses its brightness or if the salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing anymore. And so this, the, the church of Jesus is the hope of the world. And as the world becomes darker, we're gonna shine brighter. And there's gonna be a, there's gonna be a cost to that. But men, men and women, this is our finest hour. You and I are not born at this time in history by accident. In Acts chapter 17, Paul says that God has designed the world and from one man he's created all the nations and he's, he's assigned them where they're gonna live, the times and the places so that men may seek God in order that in the hopes they can find him because he's the God in whom we live and move and have our being. And you and I have been born for such a time as this. And this is not a time to run and hide. This is a time to remember who we are, to rise and shine, to love God, to love people, to stand for what is right and good and true, that we can be bright lights, stars in a dark world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. So our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I just want, before we go into prayer, I just want to ask you where you are with this important topic. And my guess is that for some of us, there's a rub at one of these seats. Maybe it's more than one. But for some of us, it might be the clarity issue. Is that what the Bible really teaches? Is that, is that really, can I be confident in that? Is that what, for others of us, it might be the compassion piece. Maybe we're the person that's been sort of the, the tough person in the past who's kind of made fun of people with same-sex attraction, maybe even bullied or whatever. Uh, maybe though we're Christians, we have not treated them with love and respect as, in, as men and women created in the image of God. Um, maybe even with those that, that we have known personally that are Christians, we almost send a message like, don't talk to me about that. I want a relationship. We need to grow in our compassion that we would, we would have both grace and truth. For some of us here, maybe... Maybe that we've never been really forced to think through what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So we've never really had to pay that price. And this is the first time we're saying, hey, will I stand for Jesus? Will I follow Jesus even though there's a cost? You know, in the New Testament, Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. And the apostle Paul says, all those will suffer persecution who are in Christ Jesus, right? So it's part, of our, it's part of our calling as believers. And so whatever the sea is that you're struggling with today, let's just ask the Holy Spirit to come and to minister to us, to speak truth and courage and life and compassion. So Lord, we come and we just pray that today, even as we worship you with this song, we just pray that according to our need. Maybe we're someone here that's struggling with same-sex attraction. It's just been such a hard journey. And we're not sure that we'll even can continue to do it. Or we just speak to that person and just promise them and assure them by the power of your spirit that all things are possible. You can empower them to live a, a really deep and rich life and be a, a star in a dark world rather than going down a way of devastation that will lead to to, to destruction and death and paying the penalty for our rebellion. And so whatever our need, Lord, may you speak to us today as we worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.